Nova Ukraine, and UNICEF USA. Hello from the employees of the Commonwealth Club. As the world watches in horror the atrocities in Ukraine, the Commonwealth Club is highlighting important organizations providing humanitarian aid to the victims of this war. Nova Ukraine and UNICEF USA are partnering to support children and families devastated by the war in Ukraine. Together, they will be providing life-saving assistance where it matters most by providing emergency access to water, delivering health, hygiene, and education supplies, establishing blue dot centers to concentrate delivery of emergency services, and more. We encourage you to learn more about how to support this important work by visiting give.novaukraine.org UNICEF. Your donations are 100% secure and tax-deductible, and your contribution will help support relief on the ground in Ukraine. That's give.novaukraine.org UNICEF. Thank you for listening. Thank you for joining us for another podcast from the Commonwealth Club. Hello and good afternoon. My name is Dan Ashley, and I'm very pleased to be the moderator of today's special Commonwealth Club program with a noted defense attorney and constitutional scholar, Alan Dershowitz. My name is Dan Ashley, uh, the evening news anchor at ABC7 in San Francisco and longtime board member of the Commonwealth Club, and delighted to be with you once again. Thank you for tuning in. As we are talking today, the Ukrainian people continue to pay obviously a very high price for the massive resistance they are putting up against the Russian aggression. The number of refugees fleeing Ukraine is staggering. Meanwhile, those who are unable to leave or are engaged in the fight or slowing the advance of Russian forces are subject to increasingly a violent and indiscriminate bombing, and the threat of even more extreme measures may be coming as we all watch with bated breath to see what happens next. Reports of targeting and killing civilians, including the bombing of hospitals, uh, schools, raise serious questions about human rights violations and war crimes. President Biden going so far as to call Vladimir Putin a war criminal the other day. To talk about the situation in Ukraine, the norms of international law that are in question and what legal actions that might be deployed, uh, employed against Russia and its leadership, we are joined today by attorney, civil liberties, defender and constitutional scholar, Alan Dershowitz. Alan, great to be with you. Thank you for coming on. Well, thank you so much. Thank the Commonwealth Club for inviting me. I appreciate it. I love San Francisco. I spent a great year there as a scholar at the Center for Advanced Study of Behavioral Sciences at Stanford. And I, I, love, I love San Francisco. It is a great and special place that we love very deeply here. I expect our conversation, Alan, to be wide-ranging, uh, delve into a number of issues, of course. We'll focus on Ukraine in just a few minutes, but there's so many different things to talk about. And I want to start with the elephant in the room, if you don't mind, uh, and we'll move past this. But you have uh, you know, spent decades defending notorious uh, criminals and uh, high-profile clients uh, to great success, and in recent years have found yourself facing uh, very serious, ugly accusations of sexual abuse connected to uh, Jeffrey Epstein. You have vehemently maintained your innocence, but it, it occurs to me uh, that there perhaps is some irony in discussing human rights violations in Ukraine, uh, while you yourself have been accused mm-hmm. of violating the rights of two young sure. women. In fact, I received a tweet just today. You're su- You suppose he could talk about the human rights tragedy as it relates to the girls that he and Jeffrey Epstein abused. That was from some person on Twitter. I know you've received a lot of this kind of comment, and I wonder what you'd like to say, because uh, I know that it has been very difficult for you. Well, I didn't uh, only maintain that um, I had nothing to do with any girls or women. Uh, I disproved it. Without a doubt, I published a book called Guilt by Accusation, where I document it. Um, I have proof by uh, this woman, Virginia Gouffre's own emails in which she admits she never met me, never heard of me, had to be told that I was the guy who represented Klaus von Bülow. And she's told by a publisher friend, put his name in the book because it will help you sell the book. So she put my name in the book of somebody she did not have sex with. This is a woman who was falsely accused, Al Gore. Tipa Gore, George Mitchell, Bill Richardson, the granddaughter of Jacques Cousteau, um, virtually everyone in Jeffrey Epstein's Rolodex. 
of um, misconduct. I have a tape recording of her own lawyer saying it was impossible for you to be in the places she said she met you. She's wrong, simply wrong. I have another tape recording by another one of her lawyers saying essentially that she committed perjury by also accusing Leslie Wexner of having sex with her on seven occasions. Let me be very clear. I never met her. I never heard of her. She has made now millions and millions of dollars uh, by, by demanding money from people who she's accused, many of whom have paid them off because they have something to hide, like perhaps Prince Andrew may have things to hide. I have nothing to hide. So I'm looking forward to deposing her. I'm looking forward to her deposing me. There is zero to this story. Let me be very clear. I have never had sex with anybody other than my wife during the relevant period of time. I don't touch people. I don't flirt. I have never had sex with an underage person in my life. I've never had sex with anybody related to Jeffrey Epstein. The entire story is categorically, absolutely false. And why anybody believes it, I don't know. There is no evidence. She has produced no evidence. And I have produced massive amount of evidence proving that I couldn't have been in any of the places. For example, I produced all my travel records, all my American Express cards, all my phone records, showing it would have been impossible for me to have been in any of the places uh, she said she saw me during the relevant period of time. So, yeah, I'll answer it. I have nothing to hide, nothing to lose, but um, by, by answering and telling the truth. But it shows what's happened in America that if you're accused, you're canceled. I'm just finishing a new book called The Price of Principle, uh, how standing by principle can really create problems for you. And I think I've been a victim of being a principled person and a victim of this woman, and I intend to prove that beyond any, any doubt at all during um, the trial itself. Let, let me get what I was asking you before we were interrupted. When you said, well, the last thing you said was that you're a victim, uh, and when you hear, when people hear a rich, powerful, prominent attorney call himself a victim, they find mm -hmm. it a very tough pill to swallow. Well, they shouldn't. I am a victim. Um, I wish... I had been mugged um, as a victim. Anybody would recognize me as a victim, assaulted. Um, this is much worse than that. Um, my reputation over the years has been sterling. 50 years at Harvard, never had a complaint uh, against me. I've never had a complaint against me in my life. Suddenly, I've been victimized by this woman for money. And yes, I am a victim. I'm not asking anybody to feel sorry for me. But what I'm saying is, if I can be victimized like this, and if the public is prepared to accept an accusation as proof of guilt, it could happen to your father, it could happen to your brother, it could happen to your sister. And so I'm the one who's standing up for the rights of everybody not to be falsely accused. Yes, I am a victim. What happened to me is worse than a mugging. What happened to me is worse than many other crimes. They have uh, these these uh, this woman has totally destroyed my reputation. Among Alan indeed some of your listeners who have said, gee, you know, I must be guilty because I've been accused. I challenge anybody to come up with one piece of evidence that supports anything this woman has ever said. Read my book and you'll see there is absolutely no doubt of my complete innocence, no doubt of my victimization. If you don't like the fact that I call myself a victim, ask yourself what you would call yourself. If you suddenly had this happen to you, that suddenly somebody came out of the blue you never heard of and accused you for money of something you didn't do. Yes, I'm a victim. And so would you be. Alan, and I neglected at the top to invite our audience to join this conversation and please submit your questions. Uh, put them in the chat feature and uh, I will try to get to as many of them uh, as I can that are relevant to our discussion today. Alan, I, I would follow with this. Why you? There are people with more money who are more famous who were in Jeffrey Epstein's circle and sphere why pick a fight with a Harvard law professor and one of the most ferocious defense attorneys in America why you why make these well, accusations against you first of all it's not only me she went after George Mitchell Bill Richardson she went after Leslie Wexner who is a multi-billionaire uh, she went after Alan Tipagore, claiming that they were on the, quote, pedophile island. They were never on the island. Uh, she went after lots and lots of people. Why she specifically selected me, though, is because I'm the only person 
who not only knew Jeffrey Epstein during the relevant period of time when she was there, but I was Jeffrey Epstein's lawyer. And if she could attack the lawyer, she could undo the plea deal that was made with him. And so I was the perfect target to be falsely accused because I knew Jeffrey Epstein during the relevant period of time, along with the president of Harvard, the provost of Harvard, the president of MIT, some of the most distinguished Nobel Prize winners, none of us knew that he was doing anything inappropriate or improper at the time. But I knew him between 2000 and 2002. And then once I became, I I knew nothing about anything he was doing until I became his lawyer. Once I became his lawyer, I ceased to be his acquaintance. I terminated my personal relationship uh, with him uh, for the most part, except to answer legal questions that I had to ask. But I was the perfect target because I was the lawyer and it was plausible because I knew him that she could have had sex with me. But what she didn't realize is that I had all these records, all these travel records. I went on television a lot. I teach classes. I was able to prove conclusively and categorically that I could never have been on the island during the relevant period of time, never been on his ranch during the relevant period of time, and never been in his home in, uh, in Florida during the relevant period of time. And his own lawyer admitted to me in a tape-recorded conversation, she's wrong, simply wrong. Why isn't that enough? Why are people, you know, forget about a presumption of innocence. I'm not interested in the presumption of innocence. I'm interested in an absolute categorical proof of innocence. And notwithstanding the fact that I have categorically proved my innocence, I have all the documents in this book. I have all the travel records. I have all the emails. Nobody seems to care. If you're accused, you're guilty. I grew up with McCarthyism. This is worse than McCarthyism. So this is, uh, from your perspective, a case of guilt by association, not guilt. That's your insistence. Well, innocence, innocence, total innocence, and guilt by accusation. Just she accused me and everybody assumes it's right. Uh, The ignoramuses who write to me and call me a pedophile or call me uh, by terrible names, they have no idea what the evidence is. And yet when I tried to speak at Colgate University, I was shouted down by a group of women who said 98.6% of people who are accused are guilty, therefore Dershowitz might be guilty, without mentioning that the vast majority of people accused of rape knew the victim. Like, for example, Joe Biden, uh, President Biden, he was accused of something much more serious than me, and he knew the person who he was accused. He was accused of literally raping a woman who worked for him, and yet because he is a Democrat and the president, uh, the, the charges against him have not been uh, taken uh, too seriously. Justice Kavanaugh was approved. Do- Donald Trump was uh, was accused. I'm the only one, the only one, period. And I challenge anybody to distinguish this. I'm the only one who's ever been accused without any evidence that he even knew the person. I never heard of her, never knew her, never met her. It's not gray. It's not, oh, somebody had sex with somebody who wasn't consensual. It's black and white, a categorical lie, which is why I've called her a serial uh, perjurer and why I've sued her for all of her money, which will all go to charity. Well, let's move on, Alan. You've been very definitive sure. there. And I think that that figure, 96% of people accused, refers to people, as I recall that study from years ago, refers to people actually accused in court, charged. Not just well, and of course, court. I've never been accused and by you've any never been, governmental you've, unit. No government never been charged never with any crime. Suggested correct. that I did anything wrong. It's yeah. all, the only person who suggested I did anything wrong are you know the people who have accused me, the lawyers, etc. All right, Alan. Let's move to something else that made some headlines before we get to the main topic today, and that is uh, your. Uh, stand constitutional argument for not impeaching President Trump. You were criticized by a lot of people for that to defend Donald Trump. And you, in fact, did defend Donald Trump. But your position, correct me if I'm wrong, is that you were defending the Constitution and you would do well, the same thing all, for let's, anyone. Let's remember the hypocrisy. All the Democrats um, yesterday and the day before and the day before that at the Jackson hearing have all talked about how important it is for public defenders to represent the accused, how essential. They all invoked John Adams. These are the same people who attacked me for defending the Constitution on behalf of Donald Trump. There's hypocrisy on both sides. The Republicans who loved me for defending Trump attacked 
Judge Jackson for defending the people in Guantanamo. You can't have it uh, both ways. I've been defending people in the Constitution for nearly 60 years. The Constitution is clear. There were debates. I went back and I read them all. The only grounds for impeachment of a president are treason, bribery, or other high crimes and misdemeanors. And as former Justice of the Supreme Court argued on behalf of um, uh, Andrew Johnson said, when you have a phrase like that, bribery, treason, bribery, or other high crimes and misdemeanors, the other high crimes and misdemeanors have to be akin to treason and bribery. And that's what I argued. I never mentioned Donald Trump's name once in my uh, 67-minute defense of the Constitution on the floor. But uh, liberal Democrats attack me, the same Democrats who defend Guantanamo inmates and who defend other people, attack me, and I will continue. Most of the people I've defended politically, I helped defend Bill Clinton. I helped defend Ted Kennedy. I helped defend many other people, Alan Cranston, senator from California. I was his lawyer on the floor of the Senate. They've almost all been Democrats. But as soon as I defended a Republican who I didn't vote for, I voted both against Trump on both occasions when he ran for president. But I don't make distinctions on who I represent based on who I like or who I vote for or who I think is right. Take the speech on on January 6th. I didn't like that speech. uh, And I refused to defend the president for that speech because I didn't want to be associated with the claim that the election was unfair. The election was fair. Biden was elected legitimately. But I think that his speech was constitutionally protected. And I've said that. So, you know, I've defended Nazis. I've defended communists. I've defended a young woman who put a Confederate flag and another young woman who put a Nazi flag outside the window of the dorm rooms. I've been an equal opportunity defender throughout my history. And I'm going to continue to do that as long as the good Lord gives me strength to do that. And I'm not going to care that people criticize me for it. What I say to people all the time is you love me when I defend the people you like but don't love me because soon I'm going to defend somebody you don't like, and then you're going to be disappointed. You have no right to be disappointed in me. Only my mother does. <laughs> oh, that's true of all of us, I suppose. Uh, uh, Alan, so your point, as I recall, was that had the same situation happened to Hillary Clinton, you would have made the same argument for Hillary Clinton. It had nothing to do with Donald Trump. Well, you're a liberal Democrat, a after all. I actually started writing a book called The Case Against Impeaching Hillary Clinton. I actually have a copy of Uh, the cover of it uh, here. Uh, Why? Because before Hillary Clinton lost the election in 2016, already Republicans were moving to impeach her. So I called my publisher and I said, I want to write a book against the impeachment of Hillary Clinton. And he agreed. And I started to write a book called The Case Against Impeaching Hillary Clinton. And when Trump became president and Larry Tribe moved for his impeachment, even before he was sworn in, I obviously changed the word Clinton to Trump, but it's the same book. I would have written the same book. Same argument. Yeah. Let's let's turn, because we're going to get into some legal theory here in a little bit and, and your role in this country as, as a constitutional defender. Let me just prove what I said. This okay. is the cover of the book I was going to write on behalf of Clinton, The Case Against Impeaching Clinton by Alan Dershowitz. All right. So- well, more to come on on some of those legal matters. I want to turn now to the topic that uh, is so much uh, in the news and so much on our minds, and that is what is happening to the people of Ukraine. Uh, human rights violations, millions having to flee their homes, uh, indiscriminate violence being waged against civilians in much of Ukraine or parts of Ukraine. You have a connection, before we get more into that, you have a connection with Ukraine in a very current way, you you were telling me that you represented the former president of Ukraine years ago, and it just recently were in conversation uh, with Ukrainian officials. Can you tell us about that quickly? Yeah, back about, I don't know, 10, 12 years ago, the president of Ukraine, the former president named Kuchma, was um, indicted for uh, having planning or calling on his assistance to kill a journalist. And the evidence against him was a tape recording. It seemed pretty good. Um, But I was retained um, by a prominent person in Ukraine to represent him. I took the tape recording to the best scientific places in the United States and was able to prove that the words were transposed and that he didn't, in fact, call for uh, the killing of anybody and that it was almost certainly done by the KGB. Um, And the morning 
before I was supposed to argue the case in Kiev, and by the way, don't listen to CNN, it's not pronounced Kiev, it's pronounced Kiev. Uh, when I was in Kiev, uh, about to represent him on a Monday, we were going to have a meeting on Sunday with all the lawyers, and one of them didn't show up. And they went to his room, and he was dead of a heart attack. And the people thought it was a KGB-induced heart attack. So they rushed me to the airport, put me on the first plane uh, out of Kiev to uh, Berlin. Uh, and I, I, I escaped from Kiev, and I did the rest of the case uh, by, uh, by uh, virtual uh, situation. And he was acquitted and, and vindicated. And uh, but, you know, Russia and Kiev uh, have been at each other's throats for quite some time. Well, I'm going to turn to, to what's going on there, but I want to ask one a bit naive question, and it relates to how you represent someone in another country. If you're an attorney in Manhattan, you can't automatically practice law in Arizona. How does that work, Alan? How do you as an attorney work in another country? Well, I've worked in dozens of other countries and I always work with local counsel. I see. But, um, you know, as I an advisor, basically, uh, I worked in Russia, I worked in Israel, I've worked in England, I've worked in China, um, I've worked all over the world. Do you uh, work as an, an advisor? Rights lawyer, you work all over the world. I work with local counsel. So you work as an advisor, essentially? No, 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 I'm not an advisor. I actually write the briefs. Oh, um, interesting. Sometimes I argue cases. Sometimes I serve only as an advisor. But uh it, I usually play a more active role than merely merely advising, but sometimes I just advise. Let's turn now to what's happening in Ukraine and your perspective from a war crimes standpoint, what is happening in Ukraine, what, what the sanctions are doing uh, to, to try to put pressure on Vladimir Putin, and what can be done to uh, continue to try to uh, shake this stranglehold that Putin is trying to put on Ukraine. Well, there are basically two kinds of war crimes. Uh, the first is the crime of war itself. The Nuremberg Principles define aggressive war, war engaged in with no justification, just an aggressive war to capture land as a war crime. Um, the Nazi leadership was accused of war crimes in invading Czechoslovakia, invading Poland, and trying to invade uh, the Soviet Union. And there's absolutely no doubt that Vladimir Putin is guilty of that war crime. He simply invaded uh, Ukraine with no justification. And then there are war crimes committed within war. Whether the war is lawful or unlawful, you cannot target civilians. And there's the concept of proportionality. People misunderstand the concept of proportionality. For example, if an enemy fires one rocket at you, you can fire 10,000 rockets back at their military. That doesn't violate the rule of proportionality. You're allowed to overwhelm the enemy by massive retaliation against military targets. What uh, the rule of proportionality is, is you cannot attack a military target when you know or should know that civilians are going to be collateral damage unless the civilian deaths are proportional to the military value of the target. So, for example, let's assume that Russia believed that there was one Ukrainian soldier in that theater where hundreds of people were killed. They could not fire on that theater to kill the one soldier, knowing that civilians would die in large numbers. On the other hand, if there were a general, a Ukrainian general, or a major terrorist against Russia, and uh, the only way to get him was to kill him and put at risk two or three civilians, that would satisfy the rule of proportionality. But there's no doubt that what Russia has done has been to target purely civilian targets. They have not been collateral. They have been direct. And so I think Putin and some of the generals are guilty of both types of war crimes. The second is much harder to prove. The first is self-proving. I don't even know sure. what the defense would be. The defense would be, I guess, Putin would say, we came to Ukraine to save the Ukrainian people who want to become part of Russia from genocide. Nobody would believe that, of course. So he would be convicted. The problem is the International Criminal Court only has jurisdiction of the second category. They don't have jurisdiction over aggressive crimes unless the United Nations gives it to them expressly, and they haven't. But they do have jurisdiction over crimes committed within war. But Russia is not a signatory. Neither is the United States. Neither is Ukraine. 
Ukraine has been allowed some kind of status at the International Criminal Court, which would allow the court to establish jurisdiction over crimes committed in Ukraine. But the second type of war crime is very difficult to prove because they could claim that they had information that somebody was in that target that was a legitimate target, correct? That's right. But it's not impossible to prove. I've been involved. I argued several cases in The Hague over the years, mostly growing out of the former Yugoslavia situation. There was a special court set up for the former Yugoslavia. And that was the issue there. And the prosecution was able to prove some, was unable to prove others. Alan, if they prove that Vladimir Putin violated these two levels of war crimes, so what? What happens? How, what punishment does he face, really? It, he faces isolation, primarily. He couldn't travel outside of Russia for fear of being picked up on an Interpol red notice and being dragged to the international uh, criminal uh, court. Um, but I don't think he's going to want to leave uh, the Soviet, the Russia. So that's not a real, a real threat. Nobody's going to go to Russia and try to arrest him. So it's mostly his status as an international war criminal and his inability to travel. Now, he could travel, for example, to the United Nations, because generally, when you come to the United Nations, the way Yasser Arafat came to the United Nations, he was a wanted terrorist, but he was given immunity uh, to come to the United Nations, and he made his infamous speech with a gun on his side and holding a, you know, a symbol of peace in one hand and the gun on the other. But, but he couldn't travel to New York to go to the theater. What, uh, how would you assess what's been done so far in terms of the sanctions around the world to try to pressure Putin to stop? Well, I think they've been great. I think it showed that the sanction regime can attract international um, uh, unity I have proposed that the Nobel Committee meet immediately and make an exception to the usual rule of giving the Nobel Prize in the fall and immediately give Zelensky the Nobel Prize on two grounds. Number one, he may not survive until the fall. And, and number two, giving him the prize now, I think, will make it just a little bit more difficult for Putin to try to assassinate him. And it also shows that this is not just the West against, uh, against Russia. Because the Nobel Prize Committee is not just Western, it's worldwide. Mm. So I have actually nominated Zelensky. I'm a nominator for the Nobel Peace Prize. I have successfully nominated two people, uh, Bernard Laun uh, for Physicians for Social Responsibility and Elie Wiesel, my dear friend, both of whom got Nobel Prizes. Um, I have also nominated others who have not gotten the Nobel Peace Prize, but I've now nominated Zelensky officially. Remarkable. Let's talk about the humanitarian crisis that is unfolding in Ukraine and those fleeing, millions fleeing to Poland and other places. Uh, what can be done? What do you propose be done to try to alleviate that suffering? Well, I think once the war is over, and let's hope and pray that that becomes soon, I think we will need a Marshall Plan for Ukraine and Marshall Plan for Poland and Moldavia and the other countries that have had to spend fortunes of money and uh, uh, infrastructure. Uh, but I think the focus now should be on winning the war and should be on preventing future deaths. Uh, you know, being forced to, to leave a country is very important, but it's not as important as not being killed in the country. So mm -hmm. I think the priority should be what's going on in Ukraine. People around the world are sacrificing. Uh, many people are contributing funds. I've contributed funds. Others have contributed funds for medical relief. I think that will be forthcoming, but that's too easy. That's too easy. Uh, I think that we in the West have to begin to understand that we might have to take some risks. We might have to take some risks. I'm not suggesting a no-fly zone. I'm not suggesting necessarily uh, anything that would provoke uh, Putin, but I think we have to do more than just send money and prepare uh, to send money. The sanctions will begin to have effect. They're not having much of an effect yet, but they will begin to have an effect. And I was very pleased with uh, President Biden's uh, talk uh, in the last couple of days, and he's giving one later. Um, and I think that uh, he has to really make it clear to Putin that he will never be accepted back into the international community. Look, this is a war. My biggest fear is this is a war that poses great risks to Putin. Um, 
he may be deposed. He may be killed. Um, uh, remember that when Khrushchev um, was beaten by Kennedy, essentially during the Cuban Missile Crisis, he only lasted a couple of years after that. Right. The Russians don't like weak presidents. And so I think Putin knows his own legacy, his reputation, his office holding, and perhaps his life depend on not losing in Ukraine. And that may push him into a corner. And that may result in the use of chemical weapons or tactical nuclear weapons, which will create an even greater conflict between Russia and NATO and the rest of the world. So this is not over yet. I think we have great fears in front of us, and we have to take these fears very seriously. Adam, uh, for one of our listeners, Adam, just uh, sent in a question. And, and if you're watching with us on the Commonwealth Club chat, please uh, send in your questions. He is asking uh, of you, Alan, do you expect to find more war crimes were committed than we know about? Oh, absolutely. Without a doubt. Once the war is over, and again, I don't want to get ahead of ourselves because we're a long way from that, uh, there'll be investigations and we will see further proof of targeting of civilians um, in, in various locations uh, throughout uh, Ukraine. And so I think the case for making a wartime prosecution will be, will be a, very, a very secure one. And uh, the prosecutor uh, in, in The Hague uh, will almost certainly have to bring an indictment. He, has to, he or she, depends who is the prosecutor at the time, will have to get the approval of the court. But I think that will be forthcoming as well. So I see a strong case for war crimes uh, being built. And it would be the first time the International Criminal Court has directed an indictment against the European country. Up to now, the indictments have been directed primarily against African countries mm. and people, individuals. Let me be clear. The International Criminal Court does not direct its action against countries, only against individuals. individuals. The International Court of Justice can go against countries, but it's a civil court, not a criminal court. Yeah, I wonder your thoughts, Alan, on the remarkable international response to what has happened in Ukraine and the Russian invasion, the quick, rapid condemnation, the sort of unity in the effort to uh, impose sanctions. I wonder your thoughts on, does it reflect a, a, a change in how uh, the international community works together and and sort of a blending almost of of uh, legal standards and 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 you know human conduct standards it seems to me that the world united very quickly against russia over this aggression faster than i remember in other situations well yes and it you know it makes me pretty angry about something that happened 80 years ago and that is the world did not unite to try to help stop the murder of 6 million uh, Jews. Uh, I have hanging in my wall a letter in German in his hand by Albert Einstein, written in 1944, in which he says, anti-Semitism is the problem of the anti-Semite. Jews have nothing to worry about as long as they don't beat us. This was in 44, mm. when the Holocaust was halfway through being completed. Albert Einstein may not have known the extent of it. Social media, television, all of that brings the front line into our living rooms. And so I do think that it's not that we as people have gotten better. I think a lot of people were not aware of what was going on in the Second World War. Also, Germany was so powerful. Um, we allowed Germany to build itself up during the 30s in violation of the Versailles Treaty. And um, the result was we couldn't defeat them unless until the United States became involved in the war. And that wouldn't have happened, by the way, if not for the foolishness of Japan. I mean, the, 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 the Axis made two mistakes, attacking Pearl Harbor and then the, the Germans attacking Russia. Had neither of those occurred, uh, Germany would have won the war. In some respects, Germany did win the war. Let me explain why. Hmm. Hitler said, if we kill the Jews, Germany will become the strongest most powerful economic and military country in Europe. And both of those things happened. They killed the Jews. And because of the Marshall Plan, Germany became the most powerful economic force, the most powerful military force, and is now one of the most popular countries in the world, never having suffered the kind of punishment it should have for what it did during the Second World War. And I think that 
did send a message to other potential dictators that the world can be very forgiving after you've been uh, defeated. The implications of that for what's going on in the world today seem to me to be fairly clear. And it's very, very worrisome. I don't know where we're going. We, 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 I think the change in the last month and month and a half has been the most dramatic change in international relationships since the end of the Second World War, um, more than the Cold War. Um, and we thought the Cold War was over. And I think we're seeing a major realignment. And the key player in this is going to be China. And we don't know where China stands today. China does not benefit from having the world economy blown up. Uh, China is becoming the superpower economically, and I think it benefits by a more stable Europe and a more stable world. And I hope it sees its own self-interest in a way that separates it from Russia. But these are too complicated to tell at this point. And certainly that is the pressure that uh, uh, President Biden is putting on the leader of China to try to uh, realize that their self-interest uh, is to not align with Russia. A uh, question coming in, Alan, which is interesting. You mentioned we talked about World War II and Nazi Germany. From uh, one of our listeners or viewers, can you explain what Putin means about denazification of Ukraine? Is there truth about that? No. Uh, le let me explain it in two ways. Number one, yes, there are some Nazis in the Ukrainian army that are defending the eastern provinces. And I don't think Ukraine has done enough to denazify those elements, they are very small elements, but they're there. And that was the justification, the excuse that Putin made. But it's true. He didn't make it up out of whole cloth. There are Nazi units. And uh, the fact that Zelensky is Jewish doesn't negate the fact that there are Nazi units. But that's not the reason, obviously, why Putin uh, came in. The other thing that I think has to be clarified is although the Zelensky is Jewish, and although I support him 99%, he made a terrible blunder in his speech to Israel last Sunday. He basically said that Israel owes Ukraine help because of the way Ukraine helped its Jews during the Second World War. Well, Ukraine was one of the worst countries in the history of the world in terms of anti-Semitism and the way it treated its Jews. We all have heard about Babi Yar, where 33,000 Jews were killed in just a couple of days. Who do you think brought them there? Who do you think brought them to Bobby R for them to be killed by the Germans, Ukrainian auxiliary police. Um, most of the Jews who were killed in Ukraine never even made it to the death camps of Poland because the Ukrainians were so anxious to participate in the killing of Jews. There were, of course, righteous Gentiles, um, 12,000 or 13,000 of them, 17 of them are still 70 of them are still alive. But for Zelensky to brag about how Ukraine treated its Jews. Let me tell you, if Israel were to treat Ukraine the way Ukraine treated its Jews, Ukraine would not be very happy. So, you know, the truth is the first casualty of war. And I, you know, support Zelensky, but he cannot rewrite history. Neither can Putin rewrite history. Uh, Putin is lying about denazification, of course. That's not the reason. But Zelensky has to start telling the truth as well. As Zelensky walks to work every day, this Jewish man, he passes by a statue of a man named Khmelnytsky, who's the national hero of Ukraine. That statue is in the middle of Kiev. I know, I saw it with my own eyes. Khmelnytsky's picture is on the $5 bill. I have it in my pocket as a reminder. Khmelnytsky murdered over 100,000 Jewish babies, women, uh, elderly, as one of the first major massacres, anti-Semitic massacres in Europe. And Hitler saw Khmelnytsky as a role model. So let's understand there are gray areas, the world doesn't unfold in black and white, and let's make sure we don't write history in the interests of the right thing, winning the war against the Russian aggressors. Alan, what, what has the reaction been in Israel that you have heard to Zelensky's comments? Very bad, very bad. They like Zelensky a lot. They're very proud of the fact that he's the only Jewish president of any country. They're very uh, proud of the fact that he's been standing up and putting his life on the line. Virtually everybody admires him, but the speech went over like a ton of bricks uh, because there are so many Ukrainian and Holocaust survivors uh, there. In fact, a friend of mine in Israel told me and he said, this is an exaggeration, but there's some truth to this, he said, that there are about 100,000 Ukrainians in Israel and about a million Russians. 
and the Ukrainians are less supportive of Ukraine than the Russians are because mm. the Ukrainians knew why they went to Israel. Because even today, Ukraine is not the most Jewish friendly place in the world. And the Russians who came are very much against Russia because they came to Israel as the result of discrimination. So both Russia and Ukraine have long, long histories of discrimination against Jews. They're much, much better today. Uh, and the irony, I mean, the irony is that Putin, despite all of his dictatorship, has been more friendly to the Jewish population of Moscow than previous um, heads of, of, of Russia. So again, it's so important to approach these problems with nuance, to understand the complexity of the world. When you're in a war, it's so easy to root for one side and root against the other side. And I do that. On the other hand, one has to understand the history in a nuanced way. Alan, let's talk a little bit more about the sanctions and uh, going after not just uh, the Russian economy, but Russian individuals, oligarchs, and, and some of the elite seizing boats, seizing assets, freezing accounts. What is the legality of that? Very questionable. And the concept of oligarch is itself very questionable. Nobody has defined it. And uh, mostly an oligarch is somebody who's made a lot of money when the Soviet Union broke up and state assets were sold to individuals, um, and many of them made lots and lots of money. But the term has been used far too broadly. Uh, some of the people who have been accused, I know somebody who was accused of being an oligarch, who was born in Ukraine, just went to college in Russia, then came out and lived in the United States and England, he is not an oligarch. He just happens to be a rich person with a Russian accent or a Ukrainian accent. So you need a little due process here. And even during wartime, you shouldn't be able to just uh, seize people or seize assets <clears throat> without any compliance with the rule of law. Look, we did the same thing in the Second World War. We seized the assets of Germans. We seized the assets of Italians. We see the the assets of, of many people. And of course, we did one of the most disgraceful things in the history of America. We detained 110,000 Americans of Japanese descent right in your home city uh, or from your home city. One of the most disgraceful episodes. And let's remember that it was the great liberal uh, justice who was then governor of California, Earl Warren, who pushed for it. It was the great liberal president, Franklin Delano Roosevelt, who ordered it. The great liberal justice, Hugo Black, who affirmed it. Again, no black and white here, a lot of grays. Uh, we did some terrible things. And I worked, I was honored to work with Justice Arthur Goldberg on a plan to try to compensate some of the Japanese American families that were, that had all their assets seized, uh, the truck farmers particularly on the Pacific coast and who were sent inland allegedly for the safety of America. But uh, there was no single instance of a Japanese American committing an act of sabotage or espionage. And so what we did was inexcusable. And, and war doesn't provide a justification for denying people civil liberties. And that's the time that criminal defense lawyers and civil liberties lawyers have to stand up, because that's the time when it's most difficult and most unpopular. And even the ACLU did not do the right thing in, in trying to prevent the detention of 110,000 uh, American citizens of Japanese origin. So don't, please don't condemn civil liberties lawyers, civil libertarians, and criminal lawyers when they defend people you disagree with. And you have certainly done more than your fair share of defending people uh, who uh, the public disagrees with, Klaus von Bülow, O.J. Simpson, uh, of course, Jeffrey Epstein, and many, many others. What are your standards, Alan, when it comes to accepting a client, taking on a client? What mostly, will you do? What won't you do? Mostly, if you don't want me to do it, I'll do it. Um, mostly, <laughs> if, if, if the person is extremely unpopular and can't get a defense. The first case I ever did when I was in my 20s, right out of law school, involved a group called the Jewish Defense League, which was so unpopular, particularly among Jewish organizations because they engaged in violence, that they, they couldn't get a lawyer. And um, when they couldn't get a lawyer, they called the professor. I hadn't been in court, never even set in foot in the court except as a law clerk. And I faced a, I, a case where my client was facing the death penalty for, uh, for murder, and I got him acquitted. 
And, um, and I've been doing that ever since. I went to the Soviet Union and defended Natan Sharansky. And uh, I've gone all over the world defending people who couldn't get defenses anywhere. And I plan to continue to do that. And the more unpopular they are and the more hated they are, the more likely I am to want to take the case. Because, you know, I've been known, I've been called the lawyer of last resort. And I take that as a compliment. And I'm going to continue to represent people who everybody hates. And it's cost me dearly. Uh, it's cost my family, uh, the hatred that was directed against me on Martha's Vineyard, a place where I've been for 50 years for uh, representing Donald Trump. They loved me when I represented Ted Kennedy, but they didn't like me very much when I represented Donald Trump. So, you know, I have a thick skin. I've developed that. It's part of my professional uh, need. But, you know, my family has suffered a lot as the result of this. My children, my grandchildren, my wife, um, everybody around me has suffered because of who I represent. And, um, you know, it's so interesting. Um, my grandchildren are both in medical school. My daughter-in-law is a doctor. And doctors don't get that kind of stuff. I, re I remember that when I was representing Mike Tyson, at the same time, my daughter-in-law treated Mike Tyson in the emergency room at Columbia Presbyterian Hospital. And I was condemned and she was praised, uh, understandably. But, uh, you know, doctors don't ask your politics when they uh, treat you. Um, they just treat you. And lawyers have to do the same thing. We have to defend the rights of everybody, the way John Adams did, the way Abraham Lincoln did, the way Thurgood Marshall did. Alan, you've made a lot of money. You're one of the most prominent attorneys in America, even the world. Has it all been worth it? The difficulty well, that you face now a pro bono. Um, so I've never made a lot of money. I always um, uh, represented half of my cases pro bono. I could have made a lot of money. Obviously, I could have become a senior partner in a, in a big firm. I've made enough money, um, enough money, so I continue to do all my half of my cases pro bono. I actually enjoy the pro bono cases more because I hate billing. I hate dealing with, um, with money. Uh, yes, it was all worth it. It would have been more worth it had I not been uh, falsely accused. I mean, that really has damaged my life. And I'm looking forward to looking this woman in the eye and seeing how she can look at me. I mean, she knows that she never saw me. She knows she never met me. She knows she made up the whole story. And yet she's going around, you know, c claiming uh, things about Al Gore and Tipa Gore and George Mitchell and all those other people. How can she live with herself? How can their lawyers live with themselves? Remember, this is not a criminal case. These are lawyers who are trying to share in her profits, her millions and millions of dollars, and they're doing it for the money, and she's doing it for the money, and there's no justification for it. So I would have had a better life if not for her, but I'm going to continue to live my life, do what I do, uh, represent who I represent, and not expect to win any popularity contests. Mm. Are there, are there clients, Alan, that you won't represent or circumstances that you're just not interested in getting involved in? Yes, I won't represent people who are involved in crime for a living, continuing crime. So I don't represent drug dealers. I don't represent, you know, organized crime people. I don't represent white collar criminals who are doing it and continue to do it. Um, for example, I was asked to represent Rodman Kardic, the uh, person who was the head of the um, um, the, the Serbs in, in Bosnia. And, he, and, and, and when he asked me to represent him, uh, the war was still going on. And so I don't represent people who are involved in ongoing criminal conduct. That's number one. That's my most important uh, criteria. Uh, the second criteria, obviously, is I don't represent people if I have a conflict of interest, if they hurt me or hurt my family or done anything that I have an interest in. But if I have no interest in the case, I'll never turn down a case because of the heinousness of the crime itself. Uh, if the crime was committed and it's done, um, and a person's been accused who might be innocent, might be guilty, I'll take the case and I'll bear the slings and arrows of outrageous fortune, which, is, which have come my way uh, numerous times. It's interesting, they came my way during the uh, O.J. Simpson case, they came my way during the uh, the uh, cases involving um, uh, Leona Helmsley and Mike Tyson, uh, but never as much as Trump, never as much as Trump. I was attacked more and canceled more for mm -hmm. defending Trump than anyone else. And then I was canceled, not for 
defending Jeffrey Epstein, but because of the false charge, the combination, of course, uh, different people canceled me for different kinds of things. The people in Martha's Vineyard all know I couldn't, didn't do anything wrong sexually because they know me. They know my wife. They know my children. They're friends of mine. They know I could never do anything like that. But they attacked me for, uh, for Donald Trump. And other people who don't know me, uh, but who supported me on Donald Trump, attacked me for the alleged uh, um, instances with a woman I never met. So, you know, the, I never was in a lawsuit in my life until I was 75 years old. And the last uh, eight years of my life have been consumed. You know, I get a lot of exercise these days, mostly walking to my lawyers and doctors. Um, so, uh, uh, but I walk five miles a day and I'm trying to stay as healthy as I can because I have to fight these false charges. The one thing I don't want to do is die and leave these charges uh, up in the air. I want to be able to categorically disprove them. I've disproved them without a doubt in my book, and I urge everybody to go on Kindle and get this book. It's free. It's free. You go on Kindle, you get it for free, read it. Nobody who's ever read this book, nobody has ever written to me and said, oh, gee, I think you did it. Once you read the book, you'll know there's no doubt about that, but people don't read the book. They just take the accusation, and they think it's true. I want to go back quickly to what you just said about Donald Trump, and you've had more vitriol and more uh, arrows come your way because of defending Donald Trump. But as you said earlier in the hour, you really were defending the Constitution. That's right. Uh, and, and Trump happened to be the beneficiary of that. You would have done the same thing. Does it, what does it say about the remarkably divisive nature of America today? Well, I have never seen the country as divided as it is today. People don't talk to each other. You know, back in the day, I would be on Bill Buckley's show. He was a conservative. I was a liberal. Uh, we would fight like children. Then we'd go out and have a drink uh, and enjoy each other. The same thing was true with court cases. Uh, I would argue, the prosecution would argue, then we'd go out. Uh, today, if you're on the wrong side, if you don't agree with the politics of the other side, look, look what happened with Larry David. Uh, Larry David was my friend. Uh, he used my gym in the house. He came to the house for dinner. I helped his daughter get into college, uh, all of those things. And because I defended uh, um, the Constitution on behalf of Trump, he wouldn't talk to me, he screamed at me, called me names. Um, that's what's happened to friendships. I said, Larry, can't we talk? Can't we discuss this? No, we can't discuss this. I saw you put your hand around the shoulder of Mike Pompeo. Yeah, he was my former student. And I worked with the State Department to try to bring about the Abraham Accords in the Middle East. And I was commending him for the work he did in the Middle East. No, that's disgusting. You're disgusting. I mean, the Larry David thing is so symbolic of what's happened in this country today. And, uh, you know, this is not Larry David, the curmudgeon on television. This is the real Larry David in real life who won't talk to me because he thinks I'm on the wrong side of Trump and, 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 and Pompeo. Where does this take us? Where does where do we end up as a nation if we continue down this path? Well, you know, I would have thought that Ukraine might have united us, and it hasn't. Uh, the interesting thing is that extremists on both sides, extreme people on the left and extreme people on the right, uh, are on Russia's side. They're against uh, Ukraine. Only a small number. The vast majority of Americans are united around Ukraine. But nonetheless, it hasn't united the country. Uh, look at what's going on with the divisiveness over the nomination of Judge Jackson. She's a superbly qualified uh, woman to serve on the United States Supreme Court. And my former student, Ted Cruz, went after her for because she doesn't define woman in the way he defines woman. You know, Jackson is a woman, but I know two people uh, who have uh, transitioned from one gender to the other, and it's made them extremely happy, grandchildren of friends of of mine. And I just, if you're a true conservative, the government shouldn't be involved in decisions involving sex, involving birth control, involving abortion, involving gender changes, involving gay marriage. If you're a true conservative, you keep the government out of these issues and let people live their own lives, make their own mistakes. But these Budinskis, uh, who now call themselves conservative Republicans, are anything but conservative. They're statists. They want the state deeply involved in the most uh, personal decisions, the right to die, when you can turn off the machine for a relative. What could be more personal decision that a conservative should never want the state to make? And yet phony conservatives 
And a lot of Republicans today are phony conservatives. They're not true conservatives. A lot of Democrats are phony liberals. They don't believe in free speech. We're seeing these lines break down, and we're seeing America becoming one of the most divided countries in the world today. It's happening throughout the world, by the way, but it's probably worse in America than in most other places. And I think the social media has something to do with it. They divide instead of unite. Now people can watch only the news they want to watch. Walter Cronkite couldn't get a job in television today because he's too balanced. People want the Fox version of the truth or the CNN version of the truth. Nobody's interested in the truthing process of trying to figure it out for yourself. You know, I taught for 50 years at Harvard, and my reputation is there was never a right answer in Dershowitz's class. Every answer begot a new question, and nobody was ever allowed to say, you're right, you're right, you're right. It's all a process. It's how to think. And teachers shouldn't be teaching their students what to think. They should be teaching their students how to think. Alan, in the remaining moments, uh, two questions. You have spent your lifetime in the arena. What is it that you love about the law? I love about the law that it helps us resolve conflicts. It helps us be democratic. Remember, the big issue in most democracies is not whether abortion is right or abortion is wrong, or gay marriage is right or gay marriage is wrong. The big issue is who decides. In a democracy, who gets to make that decision? Should it be the legislature? Should it be the court? Should it be the executive? Should it be by referendum? Uh, Who decides? And that's what the law does. The law creates the rules by which democracy uh, operates. And I've always loved the law. I think the law isn't always fair. Um, And and it, it sometimes is part of the process of discrimination. We've known that. Look, our Constitution. Uh, was a racist document from the very beginning, counting slaves as three-fifths of persons. And um, we're we're a flawed democracy. Uh, Martin Luther King called that part of our Constitution a birth defect. He was right. Mm. And the object of law, as the Constitution and the Declaration of Independence and all of our original documents say, is to make a more perfect union, to improve, to have it change. And You know, the issue, is it a dead constitution or a living constitution is a foolish question. Part of it's dead, of course. You have to be 35 to be president, not 34 and a half. But you can't say that the due process of law is self-defining or the equal protection of law is self-defining or the freedom of speech is self-defining. Those need to be defined. How did the framers, how would the framers have decided whether a GPS put on the bottom of a car to track its movement needs a warrant or not. You can't put yourself back to 1793 to decide those questions. So, you know, the law is filled with great, great issues. I grew up on the Talmud, uh, which is the Jewish law document written over hundreds of years. And in the Talmud also, there are no right answers. There are just questions which beget more questions. And maybe it's part of my heritage as a Jew to always ask questions. Richard Feynman once said, the guy who won the Nobel Prize in physics, when he came home from school, his mother would never ask him, did you give a good answer? She would ask him, did you ask a good question? Mm-hmm. And that's been the law. The law is about asking the right questions. That is the elegance of our law. That is the elegance of the law yeah. at its heart. I agree. I all agree. right. We could go on all day, uh, Alan. You've been very generous with your time and your and your thoughts, and and uh, allowed me to ask you some challenging and difficult questions that you've faced here in recent years. So we greatly appreciate it. Uh, I want to remind everyone uh, that they can tune in to the Dersh Show. I like that name, Alan. The Dersh All Show. All that's missing is the wits, and the wits is provided by the viewers and the listeners. I want to apologize. You've noticed that I put my hand on my ear. What happened is when we got disrupted early in the process, I lost much of the sound on my phone. And so I was having to go close to the phone to listen. But I've heard everything you've said, and I hope you've heard everything I've said. And I really appreciate you giving me an opportunity to answer the hard questions and to present at least my side of some of the accusations against me. So thank you for giving me that opportunity. Thank you, Alan, very much. Uh, We will end today's program. I want to thank Alan Dershowitz, uh, famed civil libertarian and constitutional attorney, Harvard Law professor, 
uh, for being with us today and to all of you watching and for the great questions. Uh, we appreciate both very much. Alan, again, good to be with you. Thank you. Thank you so much. I appreciate it. I'm Dan Ashley. This Commonwealth program is now adjourned. Thank you. You've been listening to the Commonwealth Club of California. Hear thousands of our podcasts on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, and Stitcher. If you like what you've heard, please consider supporting our work and help us bring 500 programs a year to listeners like you. Go to commonwealthclub.org slash donate. Think your way around the world with our travel programs to exciting domestic and international destinations. And when you're in the Bay Area, please join us live at our events. Thank you for listening and for your support. Thank you.